Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. After a 30-year career in banking, Grant Ashton turned his passion into a business, setting up the Wine Focus Club 67 Pall Mall in London. He's now CEO of a chain of three sites that's set to expand to six or more over the next few years. Our fascinating chat covered his musical family, how he finds and trains sommeliers, the debt he owes to Corovin, his approach to surviving the pandemic, and why his motto is go big or go home. Hello, Grant. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm really well. You're in Singapore, aren't you, you glamorous man? <laughs> yeah, it's just started to rain and I've had no sleep. So I've just uh, flown in from uh, Dubai. So I'm, uh, if I sound a little croaky and a little uh, incoherent, that's... Uh, Half of the course, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you're living in Singapore. Living in Singapore now, aren't you? Yeah, no, I've moved here about six months ago now. So we're yeah. kind of uh, a lot of stuff going on in Asia right now. And uh, much as I've lived for all 56 years of my life in in London, I uh, finally, uh, frankly, I would I'm not prepared to do Melbourne from London. You know, any of these clubs takes a lot of uh, a lot of visits and. Uh, yeah, 20, 20 odd hours to Melbourne, back to London. No, not, too, not too happening. Just too much. Well, and we'll we'll find out later about the new yeah. things you're going to be opening Melbourne, Sydney, all these other places. But let's let's begin with with your your beginnings, as it were, because you're born in London, uh, swinging sixties. You've bravely told us how old you are, although you don't look it. You look great, um, and I know that several of your family are musical, but you claim not to be. Just tell us a bit more about your upbringing. I mean, was, was wine part of it when you were a, when you were a kid and a teenager? No, not, not, not in the slightest, actually. Uh, my father is very much a, a beer man, so he's uh, very much campaigned for real ale and, uh, and beer. Um, and I really didn't get into wine until I was in my 30s. Um, so very, very late at it, really. And, I'm, and in terms of music, you know, I'm very much the kind of uh, black sheep of the family. So I, I, I am musical. I mean, I, I, I played trumpet. I was in a dance band in Oxford and I was the lead trumpet in the school orchestra and all of that but uh, you know it really wasn't for me and it was um, and my, my father founded the National Youth Jazz Orchestra um, oh, wow. in 1965 so he's older than me he's two years older than me um, and my first kind of when I was at school my brother and I were the sound engineers for the orchestra so we used to kind of rattle up and down the, the country in this kind of creaky old coach uh, bunking off school, basically. Um, I, I always point to my shocking academics as the fact that, frankly, I was uh, um, spent most of my time in Doncaster and in Manchester, a place like that, literally going, setting up a 30-piece uh, jazz band, um, mixing the console rather than my brother did because he was much, much better at it than me, um, packing it all back down again, putting it back in the coach, going back home again, ending up at you know, three in the morning, um, back at home in Harrow, where we grew up, um, and then trying to go to school. So that was exactly what you know. That was very much my life, and um, no, no sleep. The, yeah, exactly. And the rest of my family, you know, all, all of that. So my my brother Miles is the 
but a head of technical at Ronnie Scott's uh, Jazz Club oh, wow. in London. Oh. Uh, so he's carried on with that sound engineer piece. Uh, my sister Helen was uh, head of voice at RADA um, and all of that. And you know, she's, she's now, um, she teaches received pronunciation to actors. Um, <laughs> so if, you go, if you listen to uh, Margot Robbie or whatever it is in, in, in Barbie, so you know, her latest movie was Barbie, she, things like Mulan and um, The Meg. So she kind of does all of the. Uh, voice coaching for all these fabulous Hollywood actors. Um, but as for me, nothing. You went into the city instead, didn't you? You, know, you worked for UBS and Salomon Brothers and Barclays Capital. I just wonder, what did the period of 30 years teach you for the 67 Palmel experience when you came to set that up as a, as a wine club? Oh, I think, what I say, being in the city was, I started that when I was very young. Um, I think that, Actually, what the city gave me was a lot of contacts. I mean, in practice, um, what did I learn about running a business in the city? Not very much. You know, it's not what I've not what I've learned. But I, th- I think the reality of, of setting up Seven Palm Out was very much around the, the people who invested in it were my my friends, my colleagues, everybody I met in the city. And one of my um, questions I always ask myself is, could I have done it when I was thirty? Could I have done it in my twenties? Could I, you know, why did I wait till I was forty old to kind of work for myself effectively and not work for a huge kind of bank? Um, and I think the answer probably is because nobody would have been silly enough to give me any money, um, <laughs> frankly. Because the thing I think with sixty-seven is, you know, it's it's a very odd model. You know, mm. it's a it's a membership club, but it's sent, it's very very focused. It's just around wine mm. um, and. You know, the nature of the beast, you know, the, the economics of running a restaurant are pretty horrible. You know, you have to make 70 gross profit on the food, on the beverage, and we don't do that. We very much, you know, the business model was always to um, subsidize the, the, the cost of the wine because mm. there you end in a space where the wine lover knows what the price is. So that's, you know, that's the fundamental, you know, we can talk about the ethereal nature of wine and all the wonderful things and how it tastes, etc. Ultimately, if I come around your house and we look at that uh, picture on your wall there, you don't have to go and buy another picture, you know, the, the one behind you, because you and I have enjoyed your piece of art one, one, one evening. If I come around your house and we crack through a couple of bottles of Oprah on 89, you can, you can go, go and buy another in the morning. Yeah. Um and you, so you know what they cost. So the reality yeah. is, is that's always been the challenge with wine has been running the business. Yeah, it's well, yeah. wine lovers by definition are buying a commodity. Ultimately, yeah. you go to your wine merchant, you buy your wine, and you know what it costs. So the you know, where sixty seven came from was very much that. Gosh, I own that wine at home. Why am I paying three hundred quid for that in a restaurant when it costs hundred quid? Oh, and, and you you started out, didn't you, sort of collecting wine? And I think there was a eureka moment with a bottle of 82 Chateau Fijac. And then you thought, presumably, well, you know, I want to drink my wine in a restaurant or, or I want to drink an equivalent wine at a decent price. And that yeah. was the genesis of 67, wasn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, the, yeah, you're right. My, my kind of Damascene moment was uh, Fijac 82, which was, um, I remember it was sold to me by Guy Willings, uh, Les Sauvages sold me that a case of Fijac 82, which I think was owned by 
Michael Broadbent MW back in the day. He sold it, the guy Willings who sold it to me. And that was my, that was my, you know, the wine, which was, oh, that's amazing. Um, and we actually did, we did an event with uh, Fujak the other day and I f- put my foot down and said, you've got to have 82 in the lineup. And so we actually went and bought a case of 82. Uh, so if you sneak around to Kisimpa Mali, you'll probably find a bottle or two on the list, uh, the, the leftovers, if you like, of that, of that 12 pack we bought. Um, that was my that was my wine. That was that was the one where you you know, and everyone's got a wine. That's, like, yeah. that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> and, and but just one, what made you leave the city? Because I mean, you supposed to be having a year off, but you found time to, to set up a green gas business, take the chartered financial analyst exams. I mean, it doesn't sound like a year off to me. I think you're a bit of a workaholic, aren't you? Hey, look, the answer is I got fired. So you know, let's, oh, not, let's, not, let's not beat around the bush. You know, I avoided it for 20 odd years, 23 years, I think it was. Um, and one day in the middle of the GFC uh, in 08, um, I kind of ran out of rope. Um, so I was suddenly kind of, and I was very happy to be out, frankly. And I did, I did have my, most of my year off and did all those things you said. I was also um, refurbished my house in London as well. So I was just doing four things at the same time. Um, so yeah, and that is slightly how I operate. You know, is it very much? I'm an al- a workaholic. Well, I'm trying not to be an alcoholic. Um, the workaholic, but yeah, probably. You know, as I say, I was I was in Dubai over Christmas with my family, but I was still scouting sites. You know, mm-hmm. and my wife kind of rolled her eyes as we did get another site visit with my laser measure. Um, <laughs> absolutely true. But I, I get the impression that because you're having fun, it doesn't feel like work. Is that true? I mean, maybe the city felt a bit more like work, did it? What's that old phrase? You know, find, a, find a job you love and never work another day. Yeah, um, yeah no, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's very interesting. Mm. Um, I think I've been to more countries this world than I've ever this, this year. I think I was in eight countries in November. Or was it December? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm moving all the time. We, we, we're looking at a lot of places. And look, mm. I spent most of 20-odd years sitting in front of a screen. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd have six, eight computer screens sitting in front of me, and I sat at a desk from 6.30 in the morning till 8 at night. Um, these days, you know, I'm barely ever sitting down, frankly. So, Which is, uh, which is more fun, I'd imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Much better for my waste yeah. time. Exactly. I mean... Tell us about the original 67 Pall Mall site, which is this unbelievable building on Pall Mall, obviously, as the name suggests. Just, just tell us about how you found the site and maybe a teeny bit about its history, because it's quite a place, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't supposed to be that. I, mean, I think that and I've told this story a million times, but we, we were very much looking at opening a wine bar. You know, very much, I, you know, when, with my kind of year off, I actually have a piece of paper at home, this piece of A4, which was my kind of decision tree on what I was trying to do. Um, and it was, I, wrote, I remember writing at the top of it, you have a wine problem. And I did have a wine, not that sort of problem. Um, and my wine problems, I had too much of it. And very much was kind of, what do I do? Do I sell it to a wine merchant? And if I can sell it, I'll cut you know, 15, 20% from the market price, which is their margin, fine. You know, do I open a bottle shop and try and, you know, retail my way out of this mm. position? Or do I open a wine bar and try and get out of it, you know, try and sell some wine that way? And I and a few of my friends thought that would be a good idea. Um, mm. And so we tried to, I started kind of looking for sites. Um, 
trying to open one in Marylebone, if I'm honest. So, um, sort of like actually Claret in, in, in Marylebone is probably a, a very good example of exactly what we were trying to do, frankly. Mm. Uh, so Alexandra, Mazenopolis, you know, did what we wanted to do originally. Um, but we found in, instead we came across this amazing old listed Lutchens building on the corner of St. James, um, effectively Pall Mall and uh, Mulwell Road in St. Mm. James. Um, had been empty forever, um, mainly because it's a difficult building. You know, it's between two royal palaces, um, no access, you know, literally one door in, one door out, because it was a bank. So you didn't really want lots of entrances and exits to let the robbers in and out. Um, and it had been hanging around forever because it was very much in the kind of too hard to do box. Um, because that piece of St. James is terribly historic. It's very, very hard to do anything. Um, and to a great degree, I think I was very naive. I just kind of looked at this building and went, this is cheap. Let's do that. Um, and very much uh, on my band of you know, happy followers, mm. we anteed up some money. We got, it, we got it kind of halfway over the line. And then it took years. I mean, literally, it took two, two and a half years to get the thing done. Um, to get the cash or to do it up? No, no, no to, to even get permission to do it. I mean, yeah. to get permission to do it took two and a half years. To do it up took two and a half, to, to three years. So mm-hmm. it was a five and a half year front to back to do. Um, various planning and licensing. You know, it's in a very, very sensitive part of part of London. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had to be very careful about what we were doing. Um, and it's a lovely old building and... But it's a cranky, it's a cranky old lady. It's, it's, it's a wonderful cranky old lady, isn't it? I mean, I, I think it's. Um, and you know, from the start, you know, you raised the cash. You know, you 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 did the books. You even cleaned the loos, I think, didn't you? At the start, I mean, I hope you're not doing that anymore. Yes, no, no, literally. I mean, gratis. Look, I I raised the money by printing out, you know, the the offering document on my printer at home. Uh, I've still got a copy of it somewhere. Um, but it was absolutely going to my mates and saying, look, this looks like a good idea and we can yeah. sell some wine and this will be great fun. And it really snowballed from there. I mean, it, the, the, the initial idea was very much to be a kind of wine centric restaurant or to be a very, very low key, um, slightly spit and sawdust sort of you know, affair. Um, and then just the nature of who wanted to join, the nature of, we thought there might be 500 people that might care about this hmm. um, in the world. And that was it. That was our whole ambition was if we got a nice place, it doesn't really make or lose any money and we get to enjoy it, that'll be good enough, right? Um, you know, now you've got 9,000 members, not in London. You've got 9,000 members, what, in London or you mean no, around the world? In the world. So you've got probably yeah. 4,000 in London, three and a half in uh, three and a bit, 3,800 yeah. things in Singapore about 750 in Verbier, um, and then more in Bone, more in Bordeaux, uh, soon to be a bunch in, in yeah. Melbourne as well. And tell us, tell us what members get. They obviously get to go to a nice club, but they, they can store their own wines as well. What other sort of membership benefits uh, do they get? Look, I mean, it's typically in any city we're in, we're, we, we've got the biggest wine list. So it's, mm. it's the broadest, um, you know, typically... 45 to 50 countries on that list. Um, very much not the recent releases all the time. And I think that's one of the issues you have with a lot of wineists and a lot of restaurants is 
very, very uh, much the distributor lists, for want of a better word. Um, so we've got a lot more mature stock. Um, and the reality is, you know, we have a huge section by the glass. We probably have typically between 750 and 800 wines by the glass. Um, and that's one of the major USPs of that is the wines by glass. Um, and also, as you say, the um, fact that members can store their own wine uh, means they can, they, can, they can drink it in the club for corkage. You know, the, the thing I remember with wine lovers is they all own wine. So at the end of the day, if you're in a restaurant, you know, and you're, you, you, you know you own that same wine and you see that, that wine three, four times marked up, yeah. you don't buy it. You end up buying something else. So um, you, you, you kind of downsell into a cheaper bottle of wine is yeah. what you often have. Um, and the reality is, is that with this sort of market, you, in this sort of, sorry, in this sort of environment, rather, you have the ability to get people to upsell because they can see the value. They know that this is... A good, they know what it costs. Yeah. They know what it costs. Wine lovers yeah. know what it costs. So it's, it's yeah. very, very simple. Yeah, but it, it seems to be a place that attracts more men than, than women, or there are obviously female members. But why is it? Is it men are more likely to be wine geeks and collectors than women, do you think? I don't. I think. I think you know. There's a, there's a famous old statistic that women buy more wine than men. It tends to be at a much lower price point. So I think fine wine is much more bought by men. And look, it's something where everybody in the industry is trying to change. Um, mm. Certainly in Singapore, we have a much higher uh, ratio of uh, ladies to gentlemen than we do in London. Um, I think you know, generally it's just tougher to get uh, ladies to join a club. It's it's um, a lot of that's historic. Um, it's changing. It's getting there, and we 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 definitely have better better demographic in Singapore than we do in than we do in London. But we're working on both. I mean, that's all, where all the marketing spend is, if you like, is all being spent on making sure you know, lots of ladies, younger members of both sexes. Yeah. That's yeah. very much the push you've always got to have. And it's interesting you've mentioned this. You say that the wines you sell, and there are lots of them on the list, what do you say, 45, 50 countries, and how many bottles, 5,000 bottles or something? Um, you're saying they're very, very subsidised. I mean, how does that work exactly? Are, are there wines that you buy in store and you buy them at the right price, or how do you subsidise the prices? Not at all, no. it's, all, it's all market price. So, look, you know, if you think about a restaurant you know, that needs to basically make a 70 gross profit, i.e. they're tripling the value, the value of the food inputs, you triple the price, put it on the menu. With wine, you triple the price and put it on the menu um, because you only got two, um, you only got one uh, way of monetizing that experience. Whereas with a with a with a membership of a club, you've got the subscription fee. So to a yeah. degree, there's another revenue source. You've got the beverage revenue, you've got the food yeah. revenue, you've got membership revenue. So you can use some of that membership revenue to to uh, lower the cost on the list of yeah. the beverage. So you can yeah. end up with the same economics as you get from a club. Otherwise, you go bust. So mm. you, as you get from a restaurant, you, you, I, you would go bust otherwise. Um, so then that's very much the USP of what we do is to say, right, we accept we're going to get a lower markup on the wine. It's very often just a, a pure cash markup. Yeah. Um, in order as we keep going back to, wine lovers know their pricing. They know yeah. what things cost. And that's what mm. 
hurt me. Mm. Um, maybe unfairly, frankly, mm. when I was sitting the other side of the table and saying, oh, mm. I can't believe they've tripled the price on this wine. <laughs> yeah. It's a disgrace. I'm going to do this myself. And I, and I did. Mm. Um, actually, when you sit the other side of the table and you say, well, actually, mm. that's what you need to do to stay in business as a restaurant. Yeah. Um, you understand why they do it and you understand that's what you have to do. Yeah, um, but it's a shame that the, 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 the margin gets put on wine as opposed to food very often, isn't it, in restaurants? But it is on, it is on the food as well. I mean, you know, that's the misnomer, really. Um, that you look at what the food costs that, that a chef will be, will be targeting. Again, you know, you're looking at a 30% food cost. Yeah, so it, it's, yeah. it's very much the whole package has to get you to that, that 70 gross profit in order yeah. to, to, to break even, and that's pretty important to make money. That's 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 the nature of the economics of the beast. So no, no, look, I've learned that, and I think that that's the reality of the, the USP, if you like, of sixty-seven is very much that if you understand that wine lovers know their price, and you can mm. find a way to get that price point to a point where the wine lover goes, "That's yeah. all right. I'll, I might have a nicer glass of wine than I was going to have." Because I can see the value. That's clearly what you're trying to achieve. And then, and then the the package works. I mean, give us a few numbers because I think you just mentioned it, but because they're impressive. How many bottles do you? Five thousand. How many of those are available by the glass? Oh, it depends. I mean, you know, London's got I think at the moment got about four thousand six hundred. Singapore's about six and a bit thousand lines. Mm. Verbier's three and a bit. Um, we will typically always have either side of five thousand lines on a list. Yeah. Um, Typically, I think London's got about 850 by the glass right now. Uh, Singapore, something similar. Um, oh. We would probably keep 50, 60,000 bottles downstairs. Oh. That's typically where we are. And how many by the glass? It depends on the place, does it? Place. I mean, Verbier volume, we got about 300 only. Uh, yeah. There'd be 800, 850 in London right now. And, and Coravin was a game changer, presumably, wasn't it? You know, the wine preservation system where you can serve one wine, you know, a glass of something and keep the bottle, right? I've often said we built the, we built the business around Coravin. Um, so I think there's very much, you know, you couldn't deliver that many wines by the glass um, any other way. Uh, and we got, again, we got lucky. You know, we, I was just about to buy a whole bunch of the kind of wine machines to uh, um, fit out the club. And this device came along, looked at it, thought, well, if this works, this will be a real game changer. So we did very much, um, we were very much in the kind of forefront of Corbin. We use it extensively, we are their biggest user. And I think it, it does work. I mean, I think the reality is, is that we have, um, I watch a lot of people use Corvin badly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's very, and there are not that many instructions. So the reality is, is, you know, yeah. people that are, uh, Taking the um, taking it and not purging the system, yeah. um, you know, injecting air into their bottle, which is a bit or, dull, or, or corked wine or something. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered who, who who chooses the wines on the list. Do you get involved? No, <laughs> back in the day, absolutely. Uh, no, these days, um, no. We got a, we got a, a wine buying team both here and in Singapore, mm. um, and they, in conjunction with the head of wine and the uh, head sommelier in each location. So mm. here in Singapore, we'd have Richard Hemming, uh, MW, who would, with Roberto Duran, would, you know, they're in charge of this here and it gets bought by the team here. And in uh, London, we've got uh, Federico, 
who's the head sommelier. We've just hired um, Svetoslav Manilov, uh, MS, to be our European head of wine, which uh, he'll be starting in a few weeks' time. Um, and you know, so it'll be Svet, it'll be Fede, and you know the wine buyers, you know, Paul Richards and the rest of our rest of the team will you know do the wine between themselves. So yes, back in the day, you know, I would be uh, much more involved in it. Then you are. Uh, you've got time, right? I'm only involved in it when someone complains to me and I go and shout at them. That's all. all right. Tell me, tell me, what are the cheapest and the most expensive wines on the list? Do you know roughly in London? Um, I'd have thought the cheapest would be probably an entry level Riesling, probably. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's a minimum price point on anything, which would be blah, 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 40 quid, I think, is probably the minimum price point we have. Um, the most expensive bottle is probably, it's only either going to be a Romani Conti, I'd have thought yeah. of some description, um, or it might be Liver Patter, actually. We've got a few bottles of Liver Patter, um, including the 18, which is. Fabulous expensive. So yeah. yes, I think it's either, it's either liver pass or DLC. Probably. Or DLC. And do you have you ever sold one? Have you sold a DLC? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, we um, especially in Singapore. So in Singapore, yeah. you know, you, you want ask why I'm here. You know, there's a, there's a real um, buzz around Singapore um, and the whole of Asia. So there's the, the, we we regularly sell bottles in the. 10, 15, 20, 25,000 pounds range. That's cost, by the way. Not all, all the, bear in mind, they, they'd be, so even something like that, something that was on the list at 25,000 quid probably costs 22, 23. You know, so okay. you imagine that yeah. in, a, in a restaurant would probably be 70, 75,000 quid. Yeah. Um, we're charging very small markup on that. Um, yeah, and then 3,000 quid's all right, isn't it? On a bottle of wine, and it's still very yeah. nice. Thank you very much. Um, but <laughs> Um, it's it's very dangerous when you get a corked one. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> one, one corked bottle of DRC wipes out that. The don't know definitely that day, but probably that two or three days gets wiped out by that one loss because you're not making enough money. Because yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't take it back, would they? DRC most most wineries do. It was very mm. interesting. Is actually years ago we've not done this for a long time we sent all the wine every single time we got a court bottle we sent it back direct to the winery mm. um bypassing the distributor usually uh, but yeah. actually we got a very quite a very good response from the wineries directly on mm. their products um do you still do that i genuinely don't know tim if i ask mm. if i'm honest um, i mean 25 k is worth of dlc is a lot of money and i'll hand one back to obear and say hey any chance <laughs> i'm sure he would i'm sure he would i mean i i, I will name no names but I, I in fact thinking about all the ones we did that we didn't get them back it must be said yeah. the burgundy producers actually have been extremely fair and extremely generous yeah. with their support um on those things um yeah that's good to hear. I mean, listen, you've mentioned your sommeliers. I, I just wondered, um, you know, who trains them, first of all, and where do you find them? And also, are, are the skills you need in a members club different from the skills you would need in a restaurant? Are you trying maybe slightly less hard to upsell, do you think, in a, mem- in a members restaurant? I mean, I think, look, we, we, when we started, we obviously had the services of uh, the wonderful Ronan Saber MS. Um, and that was amazingly helpful because clearly, you know, he also runs the quartermaster sommeliers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of young sommeliers, you know, the creme de la creme, 
wanted to learn at the, the feet of Master Yoda. Um, and you know, they very much now, we've hired Svet, who again is a Master Smilic trained by Ronan. So we've got, you know, hopefully a good, um, I hate to say conveyor belts, but a very a, a strong pipeline is what I probably should say, um, of uh, Smilic coming in. I think, what would I, how to characterize it? I think they need to have a much broader range of knowledge. Um, potentially they would have in an individual restaurant. So if you were in an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant, you know, you'd need to know a lot about those particular countries. Now here, they need to know about everything. You know, they need to know about Georgian wine. They need to know about South African wine. They need to know about South America, everything. So I think in that respect, they, um, they need a broader base. Um, we actively encourage the Smillies not to upsell. Mm. Um, you know, one of my instructions, if you like, is if the client wishes a, whatever, 200 pounds bottle of wine, mm. serve that 200 pound bottle of wine. And then when they actually ask you for the next bottle and you suggest something a lot cheaper, that's better and get them outside their comfort zone. Um, and that works really well. So if you, you know, then go back and serve them a, I don't know, let's call it Pinot, serve them a Pinot from somewhere else that's less well, I don't know, South African or um, New Zealand Pinot, something like that, a lot cheaper. And it's amazing and half the price. That's when you really hook the member. That's when you really gain the yeah. trust. And they keep coming one. back. Yeah. And that's what we tell somebody to do is gain the trust of people because look, they paid a membership fee. I don't need to, you know, plunder every last penny on every single occasion they come because people will come, you know, once a week, twice a week. Some people are there three, four times a week. Um, and so at the end of the day, you're making a, uh, a long-term commitment to that person, which is very much part of what a club is versus a restaurant. Mm. You wouldn't go to a club four times a week. Was no. you, you say you wouldn't go to a restaurant four times a week, but you would go to a club. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Wrong yeah. yeah, you wouldn't go to a restaurant. Yeah. T t tell me how, you know, lockdown, that we all had to live through lockdown, running a members club during lockdown, nobody had come through the door. You were pretty creative, weren't you? Just tell us how you survived, you know, in terms of what, what you did. I mean, you did two things, not just one. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that was a um, that was all about the masterclass. It was all about the Zoom masterclasses that uh, you and half the rest of the world helped us through all of that. So I mean, it was very much you know the first day. I don't know if you remember the first day when you kind of could go outside, stand in the middle of the street, and see nothing for twenty minutes. Um, I did actually stand in the middle of Pall Mall for fifteen minutes with my GM Mark Watts, and there was nothing. There was no traffic. There was nobody on the street. Um, we very much had a kind of, oops, what do we do now? Mm. And what you know, we kind of looked at what we knew, what we were good at, good at masterclasses, good at education, good with tech, understand mm. what, how to preserve wine using Argon. Um, and I've got, got a membership base that wanted, some, wanted something to do. So I think the reality is, you know, we grew that into, at one point we were doing seven or eight Zooms a day with wine so we literally had all a, this wine was going out all over the, the world presumably was I it mean, i mean we certainly got at the far end of europe i mean we had great fun well, i had good fun um creating you know super frozen gel packs to keep these these little bottles of wine below 
15 degrees, low 20 degrees, go all the way to Greece in the middle of summer. Um, <laughs> packaging and all those things we did. Um, and yeah, we had a massive production. I think we went through a million of those little bottles, sending wow. those out. Um, a million small bottles. Million small bottles. It was ridiculous. And, but it kept, you know, the sommeliers busy. It kept the staff busy. It, you know, at the end of the day, it means we could take people off furlough and bring them back into the business. Um, and that was that was a, that was a wonderful thing because at the end of the day, one of the big issues I think a lot of businesses have had has been when staff were at home. You know, they typically kind of gave notice on their flat. They went back to go live where they lived in Europe. And they never came back. I think that yeah. was a big issue that the, yeah. the hospitality industry in the UK had um, was they lost their key long-term staff. Because and and some, at, some amazing people, right? Yeah, and look, people found it was a lot cheaper to go live back with Mama and have mm. her do the washing and her, her cook for you. And she's very happy to see little Johnny again. Um, and they didn't come back. And so I think you know that's very much the kind of legacy of, of, of COVID and Brexit was very much the staffing issues that the whole of the industry had and you you launched the tv channel as well didn't you is that still going yeah no absolutely no it, it, it's certainly changed in terms of what it was i mean it started as a, as a kind of live tv channel so like bbc for wine uh, we kind of morphed that into being more of a netflix for wine so it's a video on demand site mm. um, and i think that's the nature of the beast really i mean i think there's a strong argument that tv channels in the next five years, we kind of, with the exception of news, probably end up being, you know, news is the live TV mm-hmm. and video on demand is the rest of it. Because frankly, yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, go home and plug into BBC One. You know, mm-hmm. it's Netflix, it's Apple, it's it's those video on demand sites streaming. That's how people take their content. Yeah. Like, yeah. Seeing with all yeah. the people who work for me is yeah. they're they're streaming, streaming, streaming. So that's very much what sixty-seven-pound-mile.tv. There's thousands of hours of wine knowledge documentaries educational some of it's some of it's really good as well i mean lots of most of it's very good it's you know you've got some very good people not just me obviously but you've got you've got people are much better than i am but t- listen tell me about the, the venues because you've now got london obviously which is the original one you've got singapore where you are you've got verbier but you've in the pipeline you've got what bone bordeaux melbourne hong kong shanghai sydney tokyo is that true all of those have i missed anything out i mean well, you could probably add your uh probably your favourite uh, city to it, which is Cape Town. Oh, fantastic. So I've just came back from Cape Town um, dum, 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 when I was there early December, um, looking evaluating a site there. Um, will we do all of those sites you've mentioned? Some of them, sure. You know, Melbourne, we announced two, three weeks ago. Um, we're just about to open a virtual club in Hong Kong. So we have a new membership called an Entrepreneur membership. So cities where we're potentially looking at doing a physical club, we will actually have, we now have people on the ground in Hong Kong. We will have lots of events, um, which we'll be running on a kind of weekly and monthly basis in Hong Kong um, with all of the wine glitterati. Um, in Asia, so to, to give kind of content to the members. Um, but certainly, you know, in that list, certainly very actively looking at Tokyo, very actively looking at Shanghai. Um, 
I'd love to do Hong Kong, but oh my lordy, the pricing of uh, real estate there is it's, 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 it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, yeah. is the idea is the plan to build the business up and sell it? I mean, do you have a third career in you? Maybe go back to music. I don't know. <laughs> no, is that a bridge too far? No, I don't. I think we're we're very much still pretty early in the process. You know, we are very much still building out our kind of. We've kind of got two cities. We've got kind of strategic wine cities like Bordeaux, Bone, Melbourne, you know, which are very much wine cities. I certainly I'd probably add Milan to that list as, as one we're looking at yeah. as a kind of proxy for, uh, for Italy because Italy's got too many wine regions, too many centres. Uh, so I think Milan is probably what we'd look at you know, for Italy. Um, and then we've got big cities. So we've got the Tokyos, the Shanghais, the Sydneys that we're, we're very, very actively looking at. We will open on-premier membership in those cities um, and look to, look, to, look to roll them out. But it's, it's kind of a little early to say what we're going to do. And we, you know, will we sell it or will we list it? Who knows? Or will we just yeah. carry on running it, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun. You're having too much fun, right? Anyway. I mean, I, I, I love your motto, which is, you know, your motto is go big or go home. Well, I wonder whether yeah. the going big is ever a bit frightening or, or is, that part, is that part of the fun? It's part of the fun. And also the problem is whenever we've gone too small, um, we're always chasing more space. You know, so if you think we, we're now doing, you know, Bordeaux is not a crazily big city, um, yet we're doing an 1,800 square meter site in Bordeaux. That's a, at best a 1.2 million person city. You compare that to London. We started London with 960 meters mm. for eight odd million people. So, you know, I think, and, and we've taken extra floors, taken extra floors, you know, and had to do a lot more to get, to get London up to about 1,600 metres. So London's smaller than Bordeaux. Mm. And I think, you know, these days, you know, most of the sites we're looking at are 2,000, 2,500 square metres. Yeah. Certainly all the ones I've been looking at, recently, I looked at something the other day, uh, 3,200 metres. So, you know, three, wow. probably at least twice the size of London. Um, That's good to hear. You're going big. <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, there, there's no point doing it small. At the end of the day, if you're yeah. going to get all the effort of you know, raising membership, raising the equity, um, you may as well do it at scale. Yeah. Listen, last question is, I wonder how you get away from wine. You know, is there, you know you've mentioned that music wasn't for you, even though you were pretty good. Yeah. Do you get away from wine? No, not really. Um, no, I mean, what, what, what do I, I, this is my life, this is what I do. You said I was a workaholic earlier. I work seven days a week. Um, and I've got my passion above my head, in the, in the club above my head, as I speak. So, no, I, I look, I, I, I'm here in Singapore. My family are joining me here in Singapore. I have cycling and, you know, and wonderful weather. So I think the reality is, is that... Uh, yeah, there's yes, there's plenty of plenty of ways to avoid the demon drink, but uh, no, there's, it's uh, it's not bad here at the moment. It must be it's so. becoming your life, is what you're saying, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds good to me. It's my life too. So anyway, listen, Grant, thank you so much. You need to go and get some sleep, man, because you've, you've been overnight on a flight. Does it show that badly? Does it show that? Uh, you sound wonderful. It didn't sound too great. And we got a little bit of Singapore background noise as well with the, yeah. <laughs> with the motorbikes going past. Anyway, it's been brilliant. Yeah. Grant, thank you so much. Keep opening new sites. Can't wait to see we're going to open in Cape Town. All right. Wonderful. All right, Tim. Talk to you soon. And I'll see you there.
Perfect. See you, See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Grant doesn't think small, does he? And the city's loss was definitely the wine world's gain. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Fernando Mayo from Vinas del Cambrico in Spain's Sierra de Salamanca region. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.